Hello and welcome to the Stop Talking Shit podcast. Episode three now. Episode three. I'm so proud of us. Say, man, how was your your week this week? It was good. It was very busy. Um, It was very busy and... I'm just tired. Because you're just doing everything and you're just, I just everywhere. This, it was my power week, mm. you know, and now I'll just do nothing for about three and a half weeks before my next power week comes makes through. Sense. Makes sense. I think that's like, <laughs> you know what? Di- I heard diary the other day. Of an ADHD-er. I listened, yeah, I listened to, um, I was listening to a, like an ADHD podcast thing and they said, you know what? ADHDers end up making friendships that with pe- with similar people, like with people who have ADHD so ADHD people flock together. It's true. And I'm just like, that. how many people do you know that you associate with? Oh, now, ADHD? so many. I feel like like I'll make, I'll become friends with them and then they'll be like, oh, I have ADHD. I'll be like, that's why. That's why I've connected sense. with you. Yeah. Because you're just as You're weird, up, quirky, <laughs> you know, you have your a bit crazy moments. So, yeah, yeah I, think, I think we bond over those crazy and weird moments. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. How was your week, darling? Yeah, it was depressing. So let's not get into it. We, we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> no, let's talk about artificial sweeteners instead. And I was going to ask, why the sugar anyway? Like, aren't you sweet enough, you man? Look, that's what I thought, <laughs> but my husband begs to differ. <laughs> so I'm going to ask your husband, what evidence does he have to back that up, that claim? Look, I would argue that he's got no evidence. It's a fraudulent claim. <laughs> Fake, I am so sweet fake news. and intelligent. <laughs> fake news. Bombard. I mean, not bombard. Um, uh, You're bad. So I said I was going to relate narcissism to artificial sweetener. You asked me how I was going to do that. So this is how I'm going to do that. And I was having a conversation with someone this week and I was saying, look. You're talking quite low. Anything in isolation. Mm. If we take anything in isolation and we look at anything from one perspective. And I was saying... Anybody can be a narcissist at one particular time. Everyone has narcissism qualities. So if we were just going to look at one particular aspect, then we could say everyone's a narcissist, right? We have to look at things in context. The same with artificial sweetener. True story. And inflammatory oils. We've got to look at it in context, in the foods that they're in. And then we can say, okay, well, is artificial sweetener a narcissist or not? That's that's a question that I think most of you will not be able to answer. So let me dive into some of the main artificial sweeteners, what they are, and I guess how they're regulated in Australia and how we know that they're safe. So um, some of the main artificial sweeteners, I think everyone's mostly heard of them. So we have aspartame, everyone's heard of that, the baddie. We have saccharin, another baddie, and we have, and not baddie in a good way, baddie as in bad rep. (laughs) The baddie. She's a baddie. <laughs> uh, sucralose. And of course, we've got stevia or steviol. We're also going to look at erythritol. Yeah. All right. So let's get a uh, get into a bit of background information about each one of them. So aspartame. Aspartame entered the market in about 1981 and sold under the brand names, what you've seen in the shops, NutraSweet and Equal in Australia. Safety concerns around the potential carcinogenic effects of this were raised in 2006 when the European Foundation published studies linking various cancers in rats with aspartame consumption. So this is when the concerns started to arise and the, I guess, the um, propaganda began around um, equal and NutraSweet as a um, carcinogen. Um, 
After revising those studies, um, it was determined that aspartame of 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day had no adverse effects and that were, they were safe to take. Miriam and I will go into a little bit more detail on that association with cancer later in this episode. But the next one we've got is saccharin and the number for that that you'll see on the packaging of things is 954. It's about 200 to 700 times sweeter than sugar. As with most of these sweeteners, they're much, much sweeter than sugar and has no kilojoules at all. And it's not mapped as it is not metabolized by the body. Saccharin's been around for a long time, since the 1970s and 80s, and is commonly sold under the brand names Sugarless, Sugarine, Sweet and Low. That kind of sounds a bit fun. Sweet and Low. Sweet and, low. Um, and yeah, it's in your cordials, your food drinks, your carbonated drinks, mouthwash, um, your protein powders, pre-workouts, a lot of these sorts of items. Interesting to know. So next we have sucralose. Sucralose, again, about 600 times sweeter than sugar. Uh, again, no kilojoules and is not metabolized by the body. No kilojoules. Uh, it's commonly used in carbonated soft drinks, flavored yogurts, cordials, fruit drinks, and sports products. Um, sucralose is also sold under the brand name Splendor. We all have Splendor in our house, don't I we? I think we've all, um, we, we, we all went through a phase where Splendor, Splendor. was really popular. Yeah. Lucky last, we've got steviol, also known as stevia, steviol glycoside. This one's a natural sweetener derived from the plant, stevia rebordiana. Re, 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 rebordiana. We like we went, we studied herbalism, like herbalism, and like we still like some some herbal botanical Just names are still it. hard to say. Still, yeah. Um, but yeah, this one's also 200 to 300 times sweeter than sugar. Um, contains no energy and is a relatively newer sweetener in Australia, but it's been used in Japan for a long time, so more than 30 years, and it's just sold under the brand name Stevia. So I actually have the plant dried up in my cupboard right now, that's and I just put it in my tea. You just best. put it in straight? Mm. Is it like dried up herbly? Dried up herbly, yeah. Wow. My friend got it from Turkey for me and she brought it back, so I've got a whole jar of it. Good vibe. It's awesome. So sweet. Yeah, it is. I mean, but, but all of them are pretty sweet, mm. you know what I mean? And that's the whole idea, um, having a small amount to um, compensate for that sweetness that you'd normally get from sugar. Okay. So we've touched base on a lot of the foods and items that artificial sweeteners are often found in. Um, but to summarize, they're in a lot of products that are also used for weight loss or as sugar alternatives. So diet type items, you know, your Diet Coke. Um, so your drinks, your sweets, um, anything that's going to generally promote weight loss, you'll find a lot of artificial sweeteners in as well. All right, so who regulates these uh, sugars? So we have the Food Standard Australia and New Zealand, or for SANS, right, under the Food Standards Code. And I guess I'll go back one step and say, how do how do we work out what's safe, what, what levels are safe and what are not? So, yes, I know people are going to be like, oh, my God, this is scary. But they do start from animal studies, so it won't be ethical to obviously start um, testing these on humans. So they are tested on animals first, and then we make out calculations once these, you know, um, animal studies have been carried out on safe dosages for humans. So we just multiply it and pajam, we're able to put them on the shelves. So I know that sounds a bit scary for some people, but that's how most things are regulated. They're tested on animals. Once they've reached a sort of standard with animals, then they sort of calculate it in terms of human weight and body weight and whatnot for their safety standards. And then they're able to put them on the shelf and sell them to you. So it's called the no 
observable adverse effect level. And basically once they establish that level um, and that the amount, they can then uh, determine the dose of artificial sweeteners that you can have per day where you observe no negative effects. So basically this is 100 times smaller than the original number and then that's the dose that they actually set as the upper limit. Now, if you put that into perspective, um, for example, uh, Pepsi Max that has an acceptable daily intake or that level of 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So if I was to times that by my body weight, which is 82 kilos, I'm, I'm quite heavy, quite hefty. You're a heifer. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I was to times that, then that would equate to 4.1 grams of aspartame a day. So that would be equivalent to roughly 21 I think 21 cans of Coke. Okay. Coke Zero. Um, Do you well, have 21 cans of Coke a day? Look, know? I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. Um, I would say if you want, like, if, you, if you're that thirsty, just opt for water. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it just paints a picture, like, you know, that the, these limits are set so much higher than what we're actually consuming. And mm-hmm. because they're regulated so heavily, you know, it's, it's quite hard for us to achieve that upper limit. So, so there is a lot of... person would not be reaching that a day at Exactly. All. Who the heck has 21 cans a day? Exactly. And so that's why the, the dosages that they're putting in a lot of these foods are actually quite low. Um, they did a survey. So the um, Food Standards Group, they did a survey and they... They wanted to assess where who's having the most sweeteners, sweeteners, and where they're coming from, the source of it. Sorry, and it was um, through carbonated drinks and confectionery, so sweets. So twenty-seven percent of people were getting their um, sweeteners through uh, what do you call it, soft drinks, and twenty-seven was getting it were getting it through confectionery. I think the rest was through yogurts and mousses, um, about ten percent, eight percent tabletop sweeteners. So adding it to things. Um, and cordials were about 7%. So the conclusion of that survey was that majority of Australians consuming these foods in the amounts that they do present no risks. Um, so yeah. Also, we're not rats. Unless, like, you identify as a rat. I mean, I can do a really good rat face. But we're not rats. We're human beings. And the way rats break things down is not the same as how your human body breaks things down. Absolutely. So and stop pretending to be a creature that you're not. <laughs> Whether I mean, even if they identify, I mean, that's just how they identify. It doesn't mean their body works that way. <laughs> Thank you for bursting our eardrums, man. Sorry, Fran. All right. Let's uh, speaking of rats. You're a rat. Um, with regards to some of the studies done which showed carcinogenic effects. So in 1980, um, saccharin was, was listed as a possible carcinogen in humans and was subsequent, subsequently banned. This was back in and then banned in 1981. Since then, it was found that saccharin caused cancers in rats and that is not relevant to human studies. So yes, as Iman said, really good point. It might be caused cancer in rats, but our body doesn't work um, in, a, in that way. Um, so it, it was safe and brought back onto the market um, and removed as being a possible carcinogen to human beings. Can I also add with some of those studies, they, you know, in terms of the rates of cancer that they found in rats, they also, those were at, rats were also aging. And I, from, from what I read, it was also like following the natural course of health. Like as you get older, it's you're more prone to you know different health problems and things like cancer for example like in old age so um you know getting old as a rat 
means that you're going to get more sick and just just so happen that coincidentally they also you know tend to have cancer as well so again like we know that as human beings as we get older our risk of different health problems increases i'm a rat i'm a rat i'm a very clever rat which brings me to a good point with regards to the erythritol study did you do you know did you read the study i don't know no no. tell us tell us about it that was the one that was going sort of ringing alarm bells um i actually think i had one of my clients share it with me this one's quite recent though 2023 yeah which was it was making headlines erythritol has a a stroke risk um so breaking down that study and it was really good that you brought that up because then we can just divert off that which is the patients that they that they studied and they observed, 70% of them already had coronary artery disease. They were already old, yeah. right? And they're measuring those levels in elderly um, patients. So mm. erythritol, it, by the way, is naturally made in the body. So we make our own erythritol. And they didn't measure dietary erythritol. They measured erythritol in the body, which is used and, uh, sorry, which is made, synthesized in the body, as a response to oxidative inflammation. So when you mm. are elderly and you have coronary artery disease, you're naturally going to have high oxidative levels and as a result, producing more erythritol. And that's what they measured. So wow. the link, do you see when you break that study down, it kind of makes, you know, like, no, that's not right. So they measured the plasma levels and not the dietary, um, dietary intake, yeah. right? So they were already elderly they were already old they already they would naturally have high levels so i guess we can kind of x that it just um, goes to show how easily study. you can um, how yeah. easily a, a summary of a study is taken out of context popped on an instagram and the post media love that. and just goes viral and then the everyone's like oh that. my god i can't have erythritol when when in fact people are having erythritol as a substitute to sugar mm-hmm. and and other foods and which which them. which yeah. are more correlated with stroke and, and clogging your arteries, yep. right? Yep. So it's kind of regardless, they were more likely to have strokes anyway um, yeah, because 70% yeah. of the patients already had coronary artery disease. They were already on their way down that pathway. So um, not a very good study. And that's why it's important, I guess, to have, you know, that peer review as well. Is it a peer re- reviewed study? Mm. So um, breaking down the methods and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, so it's not easy when you read a study. You have to understand how to apply it as well. Yeah. And, you know, we've said that in a few of our podcasts. But that's what we're here but, for yeah. as well because, you know, our listeners are just everyday mm. people that just want to make good choices for their health, um, which is so hard to do in this day and age when you're getting so many conflicting messages online. So, you know, that's why we, we're that's why we're here, man, breaking Myth down these busters. studies and doing Point. the hard work. Myth busters. Who are you going to call? Myth busters. I like that. that we should, should have be, made that out. Um, that's a good idea. We should have done that, man. Let's do it. So another claim that we hear frequently in the online space is artificial sweeteners are going to spike your blood sugar levels. And, you know, this one has left most people confused including myself, you know, hearing these claims because people are having artificial sweeteners instead of standard sugar, which we know has an impact on blood glucose levels. So why are people saying this and what evidence do we actually have to show what's actually going on? There is a systematic review, which again is a really high quality um, form of evidence from 2018 looking at a bunch of different studies with lots of different participants. And they're assessing the impact of non-nutritive sweeteners, which are, again, like um, artificial sweeteners, and comparing them to, um, to table sugars um, and looking at the impact 
these the consumption of these have on markers of blood sugar things like insulin and fasting blood sugar levels and the types of sweeteners they use in this um, or they looked at in this review were aspartame saccharin steviocides which is also known as stevia and sucralose and there was 741 participants which is a pretty good size and what they basically found was that regardless of the type of uh, non-nutritive sweetener that was consumed there was no increase in blood glucose level after they consumed the sweetener and they actually found that, that this concentration actually gradually declined over the course of um, consuming this sweetener and the only variation that they did actually observe was depending on the participants age body weight and diabetic status so depending on whether they already had um, you know, family history or pre-existing history of diabetes and things like that. But they didn't see any fluctuations in the blood sugar levels of people that consumed these sweeteners. Interestingly, we've got another small study looking at the impact on stevia on the glucose response after eating. And this was compared with consumption of water and sugar, 60 grams, um, on three different days, which was followed by a pizza lunch. And then what they did was they collected blood glucose samples at various intervals, 30 minutes, 120 minutes after lunch. And they actually found that even though their calorie intake was the same, they found that with the stevia group that there was a lower appetite sensation so they didn't consume as much and that it didn't increase or have a further increase on their postprandial, which is post having a meal, glucose levels. So all in all in the data, we can see that there is no impact on your blood sugar levels and no impact on things like fasting insulin or insulin resistance, which are all a part of your metabolic health. If anything, we actually see the opposite. So because artificial sweetened foods are used instead of sugar we actually see an improvement in your metabolic health because they promote weight loss which is a, actually a promoter of metabolic health as per some of the data that we've seen thanks Iman, um for that nice summary okay so some of the other claims we've covered stroke we've covered glycemic index some of the other claims is the effect on the gut microbiome so let's talk about that so in a 2019 review of experimental studies and clinical trials, um, this was on the effects of sweeteners on the gut microbiome. So this study reviewed human trials. So this is human data. And they studied the effects of non-nutritive sweeteners and nutritive sweeteners on the gut microbiome composition, human gut microbiome composition. And they found that only saccharin and sucralose change the gut microbiome composition and we do not know if that is a positive change or a negative change. In this study, it just indicates that there was a change. And that does not indicate, and I know people like to take that a run and say, oh my God, yes, it changes your gut microbiome composition. Lots of things can, lots of things can change your gut microbiome composition. Having a dog can change your gut microbiome composition. Um, going for walks in the park can change your gut microbiome composition. Getting sick can change your gut microbiome composition. So... Um, it's not enough to say it changes your gut microbiome com composition. We need to know if that's a negative effect or a positive effect, and we do not know that as yet. So we know that sugar alcohol, so more of your xylitol, your erythritol, 
they can have an impact on people with IBS. I mean, I've seen this clinically. But even when we look at research, like I've got a um, meta-analysis here from 2016 looking at um, 26 different studies and they were looking to understand what sort of impact artificial sweeteners have on the microbiome and the motility of the gut and other things that um, researchers look at with regards to IBS and so they found some of the results to be conflicting and they both they all agreed that further research research is actually needed so if you find that you're sensitive to some artificial sweeteners or you are experiencing some gut symptoms, then it might not be a bad idea to keep a food diary and to, just to understand, you know, what level or amount might be impacting you or if it's specific ones that are impacting you. Interestingly, when we do look at sugar alcohols, um, these are the ones that people with IBS do tend to be more sensitive to. So things like your polyols, uh, um, so you're looking at um, isomalt, maltitol, lactitol, xylitol, erythritol. The reason why people are more sensitive to these types of artificial sweeteners is because they're partially absorbed by the gut so a small amount of them will reach the small bowel um, through a process called um, passive diffusion oh Ooh. so sciencey yes and you um biology remember that passive diffusion in yeah passive i wasn't diffusion? i wasn't good at biology okay. at all so i don't like we don't like to go there um but yeah so but but by the same token these polyols can also act as prebiotics and have a positive impact on the bifido numbers of bifidobacteria um, in your large intestine. So it's quite interesting. Um, some people can experience benefits with consumption of some of these sugar alcohols, um, but for the same reason, um, people can be quite sensitive. So just see how you go. It's quite, quite individual at the end of the day, um, but we still um, have... A long way to go in terms of research on a lot of these sweeteners and how they have an impact on the gut, specifically um, sugar alcohols and their relationship with um, IBS and how they impact IBS sufferers. But over to you, Miriam. Thanks, Amanda. I think you just like the sound of your own voice. Haters gonna hate. Okay, so now we're gonna hop into cancer claims. What? Let's debunk some of the cancer claims around artificial sweeteners. Yeah, so remember we mentioned right at the beginning that so much research is based on rodent studies um, and that's where a lot of the uh, concerns and fears around uh, artificial sweeteners causing cancer came from. It was actually from rodent studies. So I've got a system, a meta-analytic review here, um, which is, again, good, good quality research um, from 2015. And this one was actually in rats. So Miriam's going to cover some, um, some human studies shortly. Um, but this one was looking at all, the, um, all of the rat studies and carcinogenic um, assessments on rodents and in this one, they actually found that there was no significant carcinogenic effect um, compared to some of the previous studies that I spoke about right at the beginning. Um, so you can see that even in the rat world, there's no consistency. Um, <laughs> the rats are fighting the, about it. <laughs> the rats are not even sure if they want to have cancer from artificial sweeteners or not. They're like, should I, shouldn't I? <laughs> oh. So moving on to human studies, Miriam can, can give us the whole spiel on that. <laughs> So let's get into that. So in 2023, there was a meta-analysis of observational studies and a systematic review done. So that's just a whole bunch of studies analyzed. Um, and they found that 
Um, there is no relationship between the exposure of artificial sweeteners and the incidence of breast cancer. So that one's specific to breast cancer. <clears throat> Furthermore, in a 2015 systematic review of the relationship between artificial sweetener consumption and cancer, this is another human trial or human analysis of over 600,000 participa participants. And the results found that there were no or inconclusive uh, relationship between artificial sweeteners and cancers. The cancers that were um, included in part of the in the studies were cancers such as leukemia, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, multiple myeloma, um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, urinary tract cancers, uh, and laryngeal. Now you're probably going to say to me, okay, so why is there conflicting studies and how can we trust this data, Miriam? And so this is this is how I like to think about things. So I always like to approach things in a balance and I say, okay, what what is the end goal in this? What are people trying to achieve? So if I get a piece of information, I like to say, okay, what is this person trying to achieve by telling me this or by, okay, let me make it simple. Let's say the government benefits off studies like this saying that artificial sweetener is not, it makes you sick, right? And they want to prove that it doesn't because, you know, as the conspiracy goes, you know, the sick you are, the more money the government makes. Now, if we were to look at some of the statistics, especially during the corona time, I, I come back to corona because it was a huge change and a lot of things happened within that time. And a lot of things were kind of, um, it, it separated a lot of people. So we started to see how people started to think around us. When people are sick, what is happening? There's less people in the workforce, right? There's more burden on, on the healthcare system. There's more burden on the, um, for example, NDIS and government agencies to support people to stay at home. So uh, in essence, they're not making money off you when you're sick. They're losing money off you when you're sick. So it's counterproductive for the government to want to poison us and make us sick and thus hide the agenda behind these studies. That's one point. Second point of this would be we always look at who funds the studies. And if they're funded by a particular body that may be uh, correlated with, for example, sweetener a sweetener company trying to make money then we question that we say okay well, i don't think that this data is relevant because it's obviously going to be interpreted in a biased manner the third point i would like to say is that's why we look at systematic reviews and meta-analyses and peer-reviewed articles because then we can say it's not one study because a lot of studies yes they do conflict so in even in the systematic review that i m mentioned previously with regards to cancers some studies show there was relationships between breast cancer and artificial sweeteners others did not and thus looking at the overall data and not just trying to feed one narrative helps you to really have a balanced approach and look at both sides of the coin and say okay what what where does that the data actually lie versus just one study that's going to support your claim so you don't go into studying or you don't go into looking you don't have a hypothesis and then go into support that hypothesis hypothesis by looking for data to support that so that's what we call bias research we want to look into the data first and then form an opinion based on everything that we've read and not the other way around that is true research so that wraps up episode three. Thank you for joining in. We really appreciate your support and tuning in to us. 
I did mean to say oxidative stress, not oxidative inflammation. So that's one correction. Also excuse the uh, smoke alarm in the background. I have finally gotten around to changing the batteries. Don't be afraid to leave comments or feedback on your socials. Tag us. Let us know what you're thinking. Good feedback, bad feedback. It's all welcome. It lets us know where we're going wrong or what you guys really want to hear about. And that's a wrap. Stay sexy, San Diego.